podcast is produced by Encore Youth and Adult Activities. Welcome everyone to episode three, COVID and the decriminalization and destigmatizing of substance use disorders. My name is Saida Dunstan, the executive director at Encore, and our guest today is Dr. Devine Pryor and Tracy Pryor. Welcome Dr. Pryor and Tracy. Thank you for having me. Tracy Gardner, as Legal Action Center's Vice President of Policy and Advocacy, Tracy spearheads major initiatives and fosters strategic partnerships that support LAC's mission. From 2015 to 17, Tracy served as the Assistant Secretary of Health for New York State, where she oversaw the state's Addiction, Mental Health, and Developmental Disabilities Agency. Tracy has worked for almost 30 years in the health and social services policy arena as a policy advocate, trainer, and lobbyist. Tracy received her BA from Mount Holyoke College, and what is not in her bio is that she's a bad, 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 shut your mouth. Um, She is definitely one of those types of advocates that you call on when you want to have a real conversation. And in these podcasts here that we started at Elmcore a few weeks back, it's really about bringing those voices to the table that are most powerful, most real, and are are for the community. And I have to say Tracy is definitely that one and also my sister at arms. So welcome again, Tracy, tonight. Um, We also have Dr. Devine Pryor. He is the Senior Policy Advisor at CCD, the co-founder of the Center for New Leadership and the People's Police Academy, a grassroots initiative that allows community leaders to directly participate and influence the training for local law enforcement. Dr. Pryor was also appointed by the minority leader of the New York State Senate to co-chair the New York State Anti-Gang Violence Reduction Commission. In addition to his leadership roles on local and national boards, he is the member of the New York City Mayor's Subcommittee on Arrest Diversion, the chair of the New York City Criminal Justice and Clergy Task Force, and a graduate of the NYPD Citizens Police Academy. He is a frequent consultant to Supreme Court judges, district attorneys, offices, members of city, state, and federal government, and other leaders in the criminal justice field. He is also um, a brother to me in multiple ways, um, a mentee of the late and great Eddie Ellis. And I feel like it's important that we put his name into this because Tracy, Devine, and myself really respect the work of Eddie Ellis and our his small and few left behind to really understand the impact of the work and Divine really continues his work and his legacy. I wanna thank Divine too for coming today because he's another really bad, bad man. And um, we're gonna have a great conversation. The purpose of this conversation we're having today is we're gonna just discuss really how COVID has, as we keep saying, it hasn't, it hasn't done anything but bring things that we already knew was there to the surface for other people to talk about. And so we're going to continue to be the voice because we were the voices before COVID. And so we want to talk a little bit tonight about COVID and the, what's necessary to decriminalize and destigmatize substance use disorders, especially in a time where there's conversations more and more about public health and the fact that public health is a concern and that we've been talking about human justice as a um, public health issue when other people weren't. So thank you, Tracy and Divine. Can you speak a bit about your work and how you came to wanting to address substance use and human justice in our communities? Um, Okay, well, Saida, actually, uh, you know, but for the benefit of the listening and viewing audience, um, uh, I came into this work uh, with a, a fascination and obsession with health issues uh, confronting Black people because of um, what I saw growing up uh, happen among my family in terms of their relationship with the healthcare system, with reproductive health, men's health, OBGYN care. Um, it just seemed that in, um, you know, that 
black people, my family members had a different attitude about the healthcare system than was, you know, portrayed on, on TV and um, portrayed, you know, in terms of the, the friendly doctor, the friendly neighborhood doctor. And then I, um, I lost my childhood friend to HIV in um, 85. And so for me, the work has always been personal. Personal informs my political. And um, so HIV was the uh, social justice lens through which I was taught and learned about the, um, the nature of institutional racism, um, its corrosive effect on um, Black people, um, how it connects to our history, um, uh, the American history and shadow slavery, and that HIV was um, one of many health emergencies that um, landed, uh, landed hard on, on Black communities and for which the response was um, slow and um, inadequate. Um, so, and we can talk around the whole arc of history of how this has happened. And obviously with the overdose epidemic, the, the latest overdose epidemic that we were struggling with and then COVID, we see that um, black people in particular, black communities bear the brunt of these, um, these kind of health emergencies and health is political and health is a justice issue. And so um, one of the other issues is that I was taught early on that people who use drugs and people who struggle with drug use have a health condition that should be treated in the community with compassion and humanity and not in jail. And I learned that early on um, in my work around HIV and the emergence of a, the harm reduction philosophy that was very much about um, not just, you know, um, demand, not just the moving away from abstinence only, but really harm reduction and all of the approaches under harm reduction are infused with a love and value of the person. And so, um, that has been kind of a, a framework of my work, so to speak, for the last 30 years.
What I think is missing, first of all, is an apology. <laughs> I, I, I think that, that white America owes black America an apology. And I mean a real sincere apology. That's number one. But before they can apologize, there first needs to be an acknowledgement that they have been complicit in the oppression and the degradation and the dehumanization of a people. They have to actually admit, you know, to their role uh, in this and the fact that they are the beneficiaries of unearned advantages while those who they oppress are the recipients of unearned disadvantages. I think that this is what's missing in the discussion. So we keep glossing over the issue and we keep using these different isms, but what we won't talk about is the very root cause of why all these institutions were established and the fact that there is an intentional attack. See, we need to be honest and we need to stop talking about accidental overdose. There's no such thing as an I mean, you know, this foolishness, you know, and I'll get to that in a moment because I'll just put it out there. Because the face of addiction looks white, seems to be white, now there's care and compassion. But this ain't the first time this happened. I mean, when, when white folks were addicted to drugs at the turn of the century, they came up with the Betty Ford Clinic, right? And they, they used compassion and care, you know, for their folks. But when it looked like the face of addiction was changing, then there was no more clinics available. They did make treatment available, but that was inside the prison. So they set up the mechanism for you to be entangled in the criminal punishment system so that you could then access treatment inside the criminal justice system and a treatment that would further dehumanize you and degradate you simply because you were in a total institution where every facet of your life was under control, where you lost the ability to think autonomously, where you didn't even understand you know, how to visualize beyond the wall so you were limited to this box and therefore your growth was stunted and you had no way of seeing yourself clear of this situation and they refer to that as treatment in the institution. But back to what I was saying with regards to the Betty Ford Clinic. Uh, here, here we are in a situation where they make it clear that they care about their own. And in and, 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 and their mind, rightfully so, because see, black people, remember, not only are we inferior, we're not really people in the true sense. We're not even going to get into the three-fifth clause. We're not even going to get into all the different amendments that deny not only our right to, to, to civilization and access to, to upward mobility, but access to our own humanity. We didn't even have control over our own bodies. We couldn't even make decisions about what we did in our everyday life. So they still continue the, the chattel, uh, uh, chattelness of who we were even into the 20th century and even into today, which brings me right to today. Uh, all we see now is a repetition of what always was. I mean, what COVID did was expose and reveal the inequities, the injustices, the unfairness, and really the way that they feel that we should be treated, again, with violence. Look at what happened with the so-called social distancing. How, how Could you imagine what was going through that little girl's mind? She was three years old as they threw her mother to the ground in the subway and put handcuffs on her with their knee in her back while the little girl stood there and watched. And no officer even had the decency to say, well, at least let me turn the little girl around. Let me take her for an ice cream cone. Let me block her so she can't see us, you know, throw her mother to the ground while we arrest her. This is just how... They, they treat people who they don't feel are worthy and deserving of being treated with dignity and respect. I wish we had more time because uh, we, we've only scratched the surface. We've only scratched the surface. The only thing I could possibly add, I mean, because that is the, that's the landscape, right? Everything that Divine laid out is the landscape that we have had to, um, that we've always known about that there's a certain generational awakening to, oh, wow, um, Black people are dying from COVID like in really large numbers, like why? And a, a nice um, explanation about what we may be doing doesn't work, right? When the governor of this state, of this state, said that he was not aware or did not understand the full dimensions of why Black and brown people were so much um, in the death toll of COVID, I almost, I almost lost my mind. But it also goes to um, the lack, the, the pure ignorance, the willful ignorance and the actual ignorance of 
of how our systems came into being in the first place. Um, so this is, this is, you know, this connects to some of the teaching that I was able to um, be exposed to by folks who were in Eddie Ellis's orbit and talked about the Rockefeller drug laws, right? The mother of mandatory minimums and what impact the Rockefeller drug laws had on New York communities, which was removing black men and women out of their communities and sending them away for these obscene amounts of time and consigning the communities that they were snatched from to, to destruction, to vulnerability. They were left vulnerable and unprotected. And so hearing about um, the seven communities or the million dollar blocks or the fact that there are you know, seven communities that make up 80% of the state prison system. And then the churn that started happening as though the health that's in the, in the correctional setting has nothing to do with the compromised health of the community. And so um, most recently I was able to show a map of HIV, new HIV infections in black women in 2004 or six and um, more 2006. And it correlated the, with prison admissions because when you take the men out of the community, the women have fewer men to have sexual relationships with It's sexual networks. We knew sexual networks was an issue with gay men early in HIV, but for some reason we didn't give a damn when it came to our communities. And so um, the sexual networks that are smaller because there are so few choices and facilitate you know, serial relationships was why the women and prison admissions um, data matched. And so that's 2006. In 2020, the map of COVID-19 exactly matches the HIV and prison admission map. And that's not a mystery to us, but it is a mystery to those who have been complicit in perpetuating this and creating its happening. Our health crisis has everything to do with the punitive policies that were imposed on us and no response to the consequences, the collateral consequences of these policies. Rockefeller drug law created impact of COVID on black people. I can make that case. And 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 you and you not only can make that case, that is the case. The case. It is the case. It is the case in multiple things. The reason why when Devon, you went back and talked about chattel slavery and brought us to Michelle Alexander and talking about the fact that the prison system is the new way of um kind of enslaving human beings and the impact it has on community, has on families. Tracy, you talked about um, the correlation, correlation between black women and the incarceration rates at the particular time. There's also clear data when there's been conversations about HIV and AIDS in black women is that black women are the most homogeneous of all groups of females and they will date primarily in their community, which means if you are taking their men who are put away in prison for X amount of ridiculous years of 10, 15, 20 years, and possibly maybe be forced to engage in survival techniques in prison that make them higher risk. See, we don't talk about it as sex in prison. We call it survival techniques that people have to submit to when they're trying to survive an inhumane situation. And so this is really clear because when we're talking about substances, so Encore, as you know, started in 65. It is one of the oldest black run people of color organization for people of color in New York City and in the country. 55 years is no small feat. Um, started doing substance use work in 67. It's really clear why you guys are here for this conversation with us, why we say you're in the, the living room of Elmcore. This is the kind of conversation that communities had to have in order to create an Elmcore. 
There had to be real conversations in order for us to say, we have to address this because someone else is not going to. And so these, these things are the reasons why. And so one of the things as an organization, we had to really be clear of understanding the connection of drug treatment and the prisons, really understanding what was, what was almost being required of drug treatment pro providers to replicate what treatment looked like in prison on the outside. As a community-based grassroots organization, we have to repel a lot of what seems normal to others because we understand that it re-traumatizes our community when they come home and go into treatment programs that have the same level of mandation. Um, we get a lot of our referrals from the courts, et cetera. But one of the things that we try to do with our, our folks is don't think of the mandate as the why you're in treatment. Think of you as the reason of the why you're in treatment. And let's take it from there. Because once you continue to traumatize people's thoughts about how they get care, how can they really ever receive care when they believe it's coming from this place? So Devon, if you could talk just a little bit, you, you kind of talked about it starting in the prisons, but just talk about the trauma, you know, the level of trauma that has been connected to substance use treatment, especially when it comes to black and brown communities that, you know, we talk about medication assisted treatment and I don't want to talk too much because that's for Cassandra and Joe next week because we're going to continue these conversations. And I have to say like as episode three, we started with education for a reason, because we believe that people have been conditioned through education to believe many of these things. One of the systems where people are taught to either be the oppressor or to be oppressed. It is taught in, in the structures in the schools. We followed it up with, with violence and gun violence because COVID is another form of violence in our community. And now we're talking about substances and how people cope how people level of trauma. We're talking about substances, how people cope with that level of trauma. So Devon, if you could talk a little bit about the trauma that men and women who go into prisons are already dealing with and then coming home to deal with their treatment, sometimes in a way that re-traumatizes them. And maybe you can make the connection for some people who don't understand when we say that, even what it means. Well, you know, it's really interesting because until I really gave this some thought, I didn't realize the direct relationship between sentencing and treatment in prisons. Mm -hmm. But what you have to realize is that you can't get treatment in prison unless you have a certain amount of time. Uh, if, in fact, you only have six months or a year or uh, 14 months, you're not eligible to receive treatment. Only those individuals who have at least 18 to 24 months to be in treatment in prison actually qualify to go into treatment. And that tells me then it's not a coincidence when you look at these long sentences that individuals are given in this connection to treatment. Not to mention the fact that the, if you look at the budget of prisons, you'll notice the exorbitant amounts of money that folks are being paid to provide this so-called treatment in prison. Uh, prisons actually have become the default category, as I mentioned before, for people to receive treatment. And treatment in prison, first of all, let's just think of what prison is, right? Prison is a place where people are locked away. Prisons are a place where people are not known by their name, but they're known by their number. Prisons are a place where individuals have to be controlled. Prison is a place where there is very little rehabilitation and a great deal of punishment. So if you take all these factors into account, why would one think that someone receiving a treatment in prison would be protected from all these other atrocities that prison brings? So people in prison that go to treatment are confined to uh, certain areas. So now you're in prison, in prison. Not only are you in prison, in prison, but the people that are in that prison, that the prison that you're in, in prison, are actually in prison themselves because they have to spend extended periods of time in that location in order for them to be able to justify the so-called treatment that you're receiving. Not to mention the fact that individuals who are in treatment are still exposed to prison conditions. When they come out of treatment, remember the stigma of those who are getting treatment. Now you have other people who are not in treatment. So now you've got people who are in prison who got the nerve to be looking down at other people that are in the same prison they're in because these people are receiving treatment in prison. 
And then the treatment that you're receiving is an absolute joke. I mean, you know, these people are ill-qualified, unqualified. I don't know where they get their training from. They don't know anything about, you know, treating human beings. They don't know anything about the treatment cycle. They don't know anything about the physiology of individuals, the psychology, how they interact with each other. They don't know about the fact that people who are in prison are isolated and separated from their families. So they're already dealing with the stigma of loneliness and separation, not to mention the fact that individuals are in prison for things that they may have done and they have emotional issues, psychological issues that they have to endure. None of that is addressed while they're in there. In fact, I'll go so far to say that none of the real issues are addressed while these individuals are in treatment in prison. The only treatment they get is more punishment or the way they're mistreated. If there's any treatment, it's mistreated. So I would would say, I would, uh, Tracy, would you dare to say that Devon would agree with us that jails and prisons are not a point of access to care. Um, <laughs> no, they, they are not. They have been, <laughs> they are not. There have been folks who have referred to jail and Rikers and as point of access to care. And I have to say, I challenge that as a treatment provider. Elmcor as a treatment provider challenges the concept and the idea that anything remotely remotely sounding like what Divine just described could ever be a point of access to care. And we, have, and we have to think about that because as we know, DOCS is the largest mental health provider in our state. Absolutely. It is where people who suffer extreme traumas and have had mental health concerns end up and finally get some form of treatment. But as you just said, Divine, if that is the place where you're getting treatment, what could your treatment be like? And so I challenge all of our treatment providers in the behavioral health spaces to really think about the level of trauma that the people that we serve in black and brown communities have already experienced before they come back into the community with us to do community-based work. I think it's really important that we think about that. And I just wanna thank you for kind of just breaking that down that way so people are clear of how traumatic just the word treatment can become to people who've had that be their first introduction as a point of access of care. And then you become a replication of what that looks like. And you have to be very conscious. And I think that at Elmcore we try to be but you know we're humans, and we're we're always also reformulated, and that's why we have these conversations because we have to challenge each we have to challenge each other. We have to challenge each other in these moments when we really have to think about it. This is what it's about, Tracy. I see you on the edge. Go. Yes, I want to make sure that um, because we are talking a lot about substances and treatment and kind of the criminalization of people. Um, who who use drugs and this idea of um, you know correction the correctional system being a healthcare provider we're not we're not going to accept that although that is what has been imposed on us but I really want to acknowledge for folks who don't if they don't know about Elmcor in terms of the the fact that I don't think of you all as a drug treatment provider I think of you all as a community resource and you respond to some core elements that are about community health. You do address the trauma of of people who have had things happen to them and they turn to drug use to sue, to self-soothe in the same way that a baby looks for a nipple. That is our nature, is to soothe our discomfort, right? And then you are taking care of elders. These are the very elders who have children who have been thrashed in and out of the correctional system and are not able to do what is our heritage and legacy, which is care for our elders and provide that continuum. And then finally, and obviously most important, the enrichment of our young people. That, all of that lives under the same roof. And that to me makes sense. That is a black model of care. And so um, I mentioned that because, you know, part of the, the, there's this new, everything is new now around the understanding of the nature of addiction. And the new term now is that the opposite of addiction is an abstinence, it's connectedness. So we knew that, right? We knew that from that little study that 
if you gave the rat something to do yes. in an enriched environment, it didn't go yes. poke its nose repeatedly at the cocaine. We, we knew that, but that's not what the policies have been that have, have been constructed to respond to us, to, to the, the kind of legacy of trauma from chattel slavery that continues to exist. It wasn't that long ago, relatively speaking, but I just want to make sure to shout out that the, the, the concept of Elm Corps, the your leadership and the, the kind of ethos that you bring, that this is the way we do care in the community is what the treatment world needs to adopt, right? Never be like the rest of the treatment world. They need to follow your model. And I absolutely would concur with that, my sister. I think that uh, what Elmcore needed was a dynamic uh, black woman to lead it, yeah. uh, someone who was compassionate, really, you know, and really cared about people and cared about the humanity and knew that the greatest gift that you could give anyone who comes into your establishment is treating them with dignity and respect. If you gave them nothing else, just a recognition of their humanity and the fact that they deserve the best of everything. That is the most powerful, the most effective treatment that any human being can give to another. And I want to thank you guys both for the accolades. And I want to make sure that we center it around the reason why I can be so relevant at Encore is because of the relevancy of Encore, the history. Um, I've been lucky enough to step behind some very powerful folks that created something for us. Right, that when we say it's 55 years old, that's some powerful stuff all by itself. And so I, I have to say, um, I'm just a reflection of what our community does. Right. I Saida is a reflection of what our community does and what we have the capacity to do, and what happens when stigma is is created, structures are created, and you continue to challenge it, right? You buck up against it at all costs for your own survival and hopefully the survival of others. And so that is not just the Saida, but the Elm Way. And that's the reason why Tracy, you're here tonight and Devon, you're here tonight because you are a part of my community, the community that I go to when it's time to build. And so we decided during COVID that we were gonna build our voices in such a way that we intend to amplify it. People sometimes wanted to hear us and sometimes they wanted us to shut up. But now that everything is virtual and we can do podcasts and we ain't shutting up. And it's gonna take a whole lot for them to get us to be quiet. Um, we have come close to time. I wanna make sure that we're able to close out. Um, this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, we will continue it. Um, I want to thank you guys as organizers, and I think it's important that we always say that as community organizers, we're never thinking about ourselves and ourselves alone. When we come together to talk in this living room of um, Elmcore, what the world needs to know is we are constantly organizing. Every meeting we go to, every conversation we have with an elected official, every time that we go, we talk to Nana. We are organizing. And I just want to thank Tracy and Devine, Dr. Devine Pryor and Tracy Gardner, two of some of New York City and the world's powerful organizers for coming. Um, thank you for sharing your time with us tonight. And on behalf, oh, I'm sorry, did you want to say something, Devine? I was trying to close. No, I just wanted to say thank you for having me. Same. Thank you very much for this, for having us. Thank you, guys. And on behalf of Elmcore Youth and Adult Activities, we'd like to thank you for joining us today. Remember to follow us on your social media outlets, on our social media outlets, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, at Elmcore is the handle, and subscribe to our podcast on all the channels of Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. And Tracy, if you want to shout out your, your Twitter, she's got a, a powerful Twitter, y'all. Y'all follow her, she be letting it loose. Fire, 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 fire. It's at Tracy, T-R-A-C-I-E-M Gardner, G-A-R-D-N-E-R, -E all one word. And Divine does not have a social media handle, no, but... But he, you can connect to Divine. How can they connect to you, Divine? They can connect to me. Uh, they can simply go on and Google my name, and they can get everything they want. They can go on YouTube, World Star, 
I'm out there. They can get me at People's Police Academy one at gmail.com. I'm now back at Megavis College where People's Police Academy is housed. So I'm around. I'm about. I'm still involved in the work. And again, um, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure being a part of this conversation. Thank you, guys, and good night. Good night. Good night.